Welcome to Not Enough Champagne, a podcast about to look back on British politics in 2021 with a suitable amount of decorum, dread and daiquiris. Joining me to do so are the one-man Progressive Alliance, it's Luke John Davis. Morning. Labour was doing all right in North Shops before he hit the phones on polling day, it's Councillor John Cotton. Hello. Some of her best friends are Birmingham-based lawyers, it's Bridget Jones. Hello. And the only true local candidate in this bunker, my partner in propaganda, Steve Haynes. Hey, Corey. So Steve and I gave Labour and the Conservatives some resolutions to learn from in 2020 and to carry out in 2021. What we gave for the Conservatives was to learn from their 2020 mistakes. We're going to have a quick laugh about that. And then we'll start by thinking about how much they've done to address their mistakes in 2020. wanted the Conservatives to ideally learn from their mistakes in handling the pandemic and essentially stop over-promising and under-delivering. How do we think Boris Johnson's done with that? Well, it turns out they made mistakes we hadn't even thought of, which is to just ignore all of their own rules. The man who thinks he's Churchill essentially left all the lights on with a giant bombly here Luftwaffe sign, you know. The messaging has not got any clearer. They've not got any more sure-footed or fleet-footed on dealing with the pandemic. It's been a farce. You know, one law for them, one law for the rest of us. So, Extra points for LJ there for getting in a Labour attack point so quickly into this episode. Um, hopefully we'll stay resolutely on message for the rest <laughs> the of The benefit of attack points when they're true is that, you know, they're true. <laughs> we talked at the start of 2021 that the, in 2020 that Boris Johnson burnt through his political capital so quickly and yet I feel like he's burnt through so much political capital now already in fact in, in, in just in the last five weeks like it would have been last week that Owen Patterson returned to parliament after a 30-day suspension if they just have sat and done nothing. Both caused and lost a by-election in one of the safest Tory seats in the country. I mean, his backbenchers must be livid with him. Don't worry, they've, they've said they're giving him another year to turn things around. Oh, goody. I, I think it gets very interesting uh, if he is forced into a position of having to apply additional COVID measures uh, after Christmas. You know, we've now got effectively a third of his parliamentary party saying that they won't, uh, well, you know, defying the science and defying all logic and reality, in my view, uh, by, by voting against some, some very mild measures. Um, he's now between a rock and a really hard place. He can get measures through, but he needs Labour votes to do it. And embracing Labour votes to do it, that puts him in a very difficult position with the, the head-banging tendency in his own party, who clearly have a significant influence now. So I, I think it's incredibly difficult for him. As you say, he's burned through political capital at an astonishing rate. Um, but there's always something with Johnson, I think, that he was defying political gravity for so long that eventually when when he failed to defy it any longer, he was going to come crashing down. And this is, I think, what we're now seeing. He's reaping the consequences of packing the Tory benches with hardline Brexiteers. Mm. So ahead of the 2019 election, when none of this was on the cards, um, all the sensible people were purged from the Tory party and we had a much uh, more extreme set of people elected. Of course, 
some of the views there have translated into the views that we're seeing now. So he's really reaping what he's sown on this one. Couldn't have seen this particular crisis coming, but then the job of a prime minister is to respond to the crises that present themselves, amongst other things. And he should have foreseen this when um, when he became leader. It's a really interesting look, that rebellion, I think, about the changing nature of the Conservative Party. So just bringing an obscure Birmingham reference, Northfield MP Gary Sandbrook, who spent most of the past two years defending most things the government did, like not feeding children over school holidays, defending Dominic Cummings going to Barnard Castle, is one of the rebels against the COVID restrictions. And it's, I think, very, very interesting that he's chosen to rebel on this particular issue at this particular time. And I think, yeah, it shows you about the 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 changing nature of this Conservative Party. Because as you say, Bridget, it's not just that the cabinet is full of extreme Brexiters. It's also that most of the centrist wing of the Tory party were purged and before the 2019 election. That's what Dominic Grieve, Philip Hammond wing. There are some sensible people left in the Tory party, but they are backbench or junior ministerial. I mean, you've got people like Julian Smith, who is the first Northern Ireland secretary for quite some time, who was respected equally by both unionist and nationalists sides. You've got people like Tom Tugendhat and Penny Mordaunt and Victoria Atkins, Robert Halfon. There is that sensible rank there, but they're, they're held back and they're not anywhere near ministerial office. And what's going to be really interesting if he does leave or is forced out, none of them are in a position, possibly, if you want to count Jeremy Hunt in that group, possibly, but none of them are, are near enough to the top that they could be a plausible replacement leader the thing is even with the, the the list of people you just named as being the sensible ones tom tugendhat voted against the covid restrictions well and penny morden was in america i think last week giving a very very odd speech was that the one where she was com- kind of comparing like brexit negotiations to like the war and narrow it down steve <laughs> but yeah yeah it was i think it was essentially saying that britain's fighting for freedom and the u.s should support britain on its role in in freedom it's strange like you had Joy Morrissey this week trying to attack Chris Whitty for being an unelected official. Uh, having with the name Morrissey. It's something with the name Morrissey saying ridiculous things, isn't it? Although Marr is moving on, isn't he? So I thought there was an interesting thing in the Johnson interview that he gave to Sam Coates after North Shropshire. And most people, I think, have picked on the fact that Johnson just refuses to take responsibility. And whenever Sam Coates asks him about whether or not he takes any responsibility, he just attacks the journalists. But Johnson says that... It's the job of the government to tell the press about the good things it's doing, like the vaccine, all that sort of stuff. But actually, that's not the job of the government. That's the role of the press office and the government. The role of the government is to actually deliver on things and to actually do stuff. That's what's been missing. Fundamentally, Johnson and his uh, government would have a, a lot of an easier time in terms of dealing with the press if they were actually doing anything. But they're, they're, they're not. Like, the things they are having to deal with, like, such as the pandemic and everything, they've, they've, they've botched. Um, and even things that are technically within their power to, do, to deal with, like the levelling up agenda, that's, still, that's delayed yet again, the white paper on that. And that was given to Michael Gove to deal with. And, like, Gove's one of the more competent members. Might not like him or agree with him on much, but he's, he gets stuff done. And even he's not been able to get anything sorted on this to the point where we're now delayed until January, I think it is. But what's interesting is he needed... Johnson needed that political capital he squandered to spend on something like levelling up, right? 
I mean, Johnson is, okay, I'll rephrase that, the current iteration of Johnson, because he changes ideology like he changes clothes, or girlfriends and wives, is a big state nationalist. It's, it's Gaullist, almost. And that is not a tradition that you find in the Conservative Party. There is not a natural ideological support base for him amongst the Conservatives. So the support he does have is incredibly transactional. Mm. We'll support you because you you won, and you know, and it comes from those red wall seats in a lot of cases. People like Gary Sandbrook and Gullis and Stoke North and Tom Randall and Gedling, you know, the the ones who are looking over their shoulder incredibly nervously at the polls. Right, they don't have the ideological agreement with him, so they were going to allow him to do this leveling up stuff in exchange for, you know, maintaining an eighty seat majority. And if it looks like he's nowhere near getting. To, to the point of winning that again, there is no basis then for their loyalty. And it's also, it's you can't put this stuff back in the box. Once the blood is in the water and people sense that, you, you people like Sunak and Truss and Patel um, and your other figures, probably Hunt, uh, possibly Gove, who are sort of looking to follow on from him, they'll start mobilising supporters and having you know chats with people who might be potentially able to vote for them and so on. And that comes to the ears of the others very, very quickly. So then they start doing the same thing. And then it all starts snowballing because everyone assumes it's coming next because everyone else is already having prep for it. But there's a bigger strategic problem for them here beyond that, you know, the, the, the wrangling and the jostling for leadership and, and whether, whether he goes or not and what happens then. But, you know, who else is there who can hold that coalition together that won them the 80-seat majority in 2019? Uh, because, like like you said, you can't put some of this stuff back in the box now. But you know, what does the Tory Party stand for? Is it is it about big state interventionism? Is it about small state Thatcherism? Um, and you've got both wings now represented and noisily represented within the Tory Party. I think some of the stuff we've seen through by elections and that is starting to play out some of the tensions within that coalition. I think that is now massively accelerating. Um, I think it becomes very very difficult for them. I can't see anybody else who can step in and hold that coalition together when even the person who's effectively responsible for forging it is struggling to do it as well. Yeah, and I think the uh, the other core component when you talk about like, like holding that coalition together is that I think what we're seeing now is that actually an all, an, a major component of that 2019 victory and what held that coalition together and formed it was Brexit in mm. some form. And now we have the, the very odd sight of North Shropshire, a seat which voted leave, voting uh you know swinging to the lib dems on a massive swing something like the seventh or eighth largest ever you know the, the lib dems and their candidates are unapologetically remain and that just demonstrates that that core issue of brexit doesn't matter as much as it used to maybe it still does and maybe at the next general election it still has that, that, that some some traction but it's not the be all and end all now and that's majorly problematic for the Conservatives. I, th I think he has taken the sting out of that somewhat by not bowing to calls from certain quarters to make everything about rejoining the EU and refighting th fights we've lost two or three times already. Particularly in, in the, the last two, you know, Amersham and Chesham and, and North Shropshire, they're completely free hits. You know, he had an 80-seat majority. If he loses one, it's not actually going to make any difference. I mean, it's also how quickly this has all happened, right? It's only in May, six, seven months ago, that 
he stomped to victory in Hartlepool and we barely held on to Batley and Spen. The counterpoint to what Steve has said, though, about Brexit and North Shropshire is actually, and just to, you know, uh, LJ said to, not to refight all battles, but given that North Shropshire is a very rural seat and given that the government's policy over farming and Brexit has essentially been to screw over British farmers, I do wonder if actually Brexit is still a real issue in the, the government's mismanaging of it, government throwing British farmers under the bus. I think that's probably a simmering issue. And the Lib Dems did talk about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I don't disagree with that at all. But I think there's a difference between, for, for, for lack of a better, but, but a better way of describing it, here is the realities of what Brexit actually means versus support for Brexit and the big giant ideological split of you know Brexit versus Remain and I think what I'm what I'm talking about and what you're talking about aren't necessarily competing things I think they both kind of can actually align together because I'm more talking about that big top level leave versus Remain and you're talking about more the kind of like the continuation on the almost like the micro level of this is how it all all, all actually ends up working in reality. So yeah, I think you're right that that, that definitely is 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 an element of this. You know, for the for the Tories to lose the farming vote in in an area like that is that alone is a story and a headline um, in its own way. Farm it's again, been... surely is the headline. Oh. <laughs> We've talked a little bit about the sort of realignment of British politics along sort of leave remain lines on sort of vaguely cultural lines, and one of the resolutions we had at the start of the year for the Conservatives was not to talk too much about and focus on culture war issues. And that, I think, is something they've definitely failed on. We mentioned the vote on COVID restrictions already. I think, actually, you can see that the the parliamentary party in the, Tory, in the Tories are focusing on things like masks as culture war issues. And that seems to be definitely happened in a way of, feels like they're trying to import an American culture war here, where there really isn't one. And it's it's massively at odds with public opinion. I do find it quite mystifying. I suppose they got elected on what was our cultural issue, wasn't it? Brexit swiftly became a completely dividing thing in our culture. And the current Tory parliamentary party were elected off the back of that. So it makes sense to some level that they would want to keep feeding off of that energy um, and, and feeding and growing their um their, their politics off of that to an extent. I, I, I still think with the, the, the culture war stuff, it only gets you so far. Um, and I think the, the significance of it has been massively overplayed, particularly in the in the media. Um, I, I don't think we're kind of the fertile territory for the kind of culture war stuff that certainly we're seeing in the States, which I think is terrifying, frankly. Um, you know, and, and the, my sense is the tour is kind of maxed, already maxed out on, on the available vote that came from culture war stuff, but it perhaps is now a sort of comfort blanket that they they reach for every time they face do what they think is a set of political challenges. Um, but clearly, the challenges they do face are the well, how are you actually making Brexit work? How are you practically delivering on the levelling up stuff? And that's where we're seeing the, the the serious failures playing through. One of the things we didn't see in North Shropshire is the Tories didn't lose the seat because they lost lots of votes to the Reform Party, who are mm. really trying to push the sort of anti-mask, anti-lockdown culture war point. They mainly lost, actually, because Tory voters stayed at home. I think it says an awful lot about the psychology of the current Conservative Party. If you think about the Conservative Party in its current form as like a populist party and a populist movement for lack of a better term which I think most people would kind of agree that's very much Johnson's kind of like raison d'etre the culture war gives them something 
to kind of rally against because they've moved from a position of we are against the elites to becoming the elites and being put in power. And suddenly if they, it, it's that standard thing of, you know, the populists get in and they can't actually do anything they really want to do because actually reality is not as simple as they've made it out to be. And so they've ended up uh, in, in a situation where they then need to have something to rally around. And the cultural stuff works quite nicely because it sets them up as the defiant underdogs. Because if you look at all of their stuff, it's always, you know, liberal elite. It's always the media with the, with the, the lefty media. It's always, um, you know, at universities, left wing academics and, and things like that. It's always, you know, the right wing, the conservatives being um, pushed down against and effectively claiming uh, kind of like the role of the oppressed. And that is very much, I think, why the, the thing there, because it gives them a nice kind of like crutch that they can kind of lean on. Um, and it makes them feel like, well, if we do get something wrong, it's not because of us. It's because everything else is against us. I mean, that's what they claim, but that's not really true, is it? No, it's not, not true at all. But I think a lot of them believe it. I, just coming back to some of the levelling up stuff, it's just a mismanagement of him by his party, isn't it? If you're serious about trying to increase funds in the country you probably don't make i think elder's got a good point about the fact it's a kind of quite a gaudless agenda but if you if your agenda domestically involves spending money you don't make wishy seem like your chancellor and you probably don't bring sasha jaffid or to give him his proper title the sag in a secretary of state for health leveling up is a genius slogan so for years we've pushed the agenda of um reducing inequalities in birmingham and i'm always struck by how many people think that that potentially means bringing people down to the average rather than bringing people up which is ideally what we'd, we'd like to do um so leveling up cuts through that it's it's actually the slogan we should have had all along bringing people up to to where we'd like to be um the reality of it for local authorities has just been no change it's just been a series of funding pots not a very big series of funding pots that you have to bid into um, you generally have to have off-the-shelf uh, bids ready to go via different projects, and they have to match whatever it is the government is prioritising this week. Um, overall, they've been very small sums of money in the grand scheme of things, uh, allocated for very specific things, um, and usually infrastructure projects rather than anything else. In, in Birmingham, we've set out what we think Birmingham would need to level up, and it's a mixture of infrastructure um, and actual human side of things, so skills, early intervention, that kind of thing, uh, to bring Birmingham up to, to where we'd like to be. Uh, but that's not where the government's at at the moment. So far, the levelling up agenda has just been small pots of money uh, for infrastructure projects and nothing more. It's a fantastic title. I think it's captured the imagination of everyone, as we've seen by, by everybody starting to use that phrase, Labour Party and beyond. But the reality of it is is nothing there. It's a, it's a shroud at this point in time. I know we've had the, the leak of Gobe's paper, um, which is interesting. It'll be interesting to see how that plays out to what we eventually get. I assume it's yet another full, it's yet another leak to test the water and they'll uh, tweak their final thing based on the press they get off of it, as they have done with most other policies in the last couple of years. Um, but yeah, I think we've got a clear idea in Birmingham as to what levelling up should look like. I really don't think the government's got much behind that slogan, though. I think there's then a real, you know, it's, this is where, where, where things come home to roost around uh, the difference between um, slogans and delivery. 
So and I think you're right as a, as a slogan, it's incredibly powerful. And, you know, people certainly buy into that. But when you then look at the distribution of what limited funding that there's been, some of it going to some places that you certainly wouldn't have in your top 10 of places that desperately need investments in order to level up. Uh, some quite well-heeled parts of the country that just totally coincidentally appear to have Conservative MPs and former members of the cabinet. Um, but then uh, on top of that, you then see particularly those announcements that we had around high-speed rail and the rail connections in, in the north and, you know, the, the stuff around the Trans-Pennine Railway, for instance, where uh, commitments that people thought had been made then just get torn up. That, I think, starts to create real problems for the, the Conservative Party as well, because you've got a slogan but when it comes to practical things that, that, that actually deliver levelling up in a meaningful sense, they either you know, aren't reaching you or, or commitments are being, are being rowed away from. So that, that's also Johnson's ego thing about you know, getting a big infrastructure project or something and slapping his name on it, like the Boris bikes. HS2 is a big, shiny infrastructure project. And I'm sort of in favour of HS2 because you know, our railway infrastructure was built in the 1860s for a much smaller population and hasn't been updated. But... Equally, you know, if you if you're talking to you know around around where I am in the Black Country, kind of Tipton, Wensbury, whatever, and you say, oh, "What can we do to make your lives better?" They don't go, "Oh, I want to be able to get to London faster." Something a little bit insulting, really, and saying, "Oh, well, we'll make your lives better because we can we can help you leave your home quicker." This I'm, is I'm where, not... sorry, sorry, no, after you. <laughs> this is where the marketing around high speed two has failed. So high speed two isn't about getting to London quicker. It's basically building a bypass. And that bypass is freeing up the space on the other lines, putting more local services and more stopping services and opening up commuter routes uh, that haven't been there, opening up new stations that haven't been there. That's what High Speed 2 is. It's putting us at the heart of a national network of high speed lines. Yeah. Um, but it is also that bypass, essentially, to free up space for, for local people to make local journeys. And the, just the slogans around it, the marketing around it just hasn't cut through with that, sadly. It should be transformative for places uh, like the Black Country, like anywhere along those those main lines. Um, suddenly you should have a lot more capacity for services for local people uh, to get around. But that just hasn't cut through with people. I think it needs to be HS2 and, not HS2 but, doesn't it? Because you need to have your high-speed rail so you can free up the capacity for your uh, local services and a proper bus service so you can get round Tipton, Wensbury, Shardend, say. But instead, the uh, all the media coverage has been about just trains and we've had an unregulated bus service for 40 years, which doesn't, see, uh, doesn't seem to be changing anytime soon. I think it's interesting that people like Andy Burnham and Tracy Brabin have made a lot of waves in their mayoral campaigns by focusing on things like buses. I think I think I think there's a lot a lot in that, and and yeah, the, the focus of the the HS2 debate has been too much on the the super fast train and not enough on the fact that if you create that extra you know create that bypass to, to use Bridges' term, that means that more people can get trains from Stetford and Lee Hall in my own patch, for instance, and and, and get around uh, get around the the, the the city and the and the and the region. And but you know the, the other bit for me, that's why I was talking about the, the sort of like the, the Pennine connections as well. I think that is such an egregious slap in the face for people who are living <laughs> in that part of the country, given the commitments that were they were given previously, really underscores the lie and the difference between levelling up as a slogan and levelling up in reality. And I do think that will come back to, to, to haunt the Tories uh, over the next few years. OK, so I, I suppose 
Conservatives massively screwed up 2021. Don't really see that changing much in 2022, even if they change a new leader. In terms of where we where we sort of said for, for Labour in, in 2022, we uh, in 2021, we um, talked about the local election results. And Steve and I have talked about that already. No, no need to revisit it. One of them was about getting a, a, a policy agenda. Um, and there was some interesting stuff at conference pass, wasn't there, particularly over housing policy. I don't know if anyone was around in conference. I don't know, say maybe moving the policy motion at conference. Did you see it, John? I, I may, 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 may have been aware of it, had a small walk-on part. Um, <laughs> yeah, I, we, on, on, on housing, uh, we, we had a, a, a adopted a really good uh, composite resolution, which would effectively change his party policy. Um, we've now uh, committed the party to acknowledging housing as a human right. So following what, happen, what already happens in places like Canada, um, and alongside that, not just setting out the legal right to, to, to decent, safe, affordable housing, but then a series of policies to turn that into a practical commitment. So massive increase in, in the building of, of social housing, uh, the majority of which is intended to be council housing, fully funded to do that. Uh, and also uh, changes to uh, tenants' rights and, and more regulation of the, the private rented sector. So a really uh, solid uh, set of commitments that would make a huge difference to people uh, struggling through the absolute mess that the, the Tories have made of our housing system over the over the last decade. But I think also at conference we saw you know some wider uh, policy agendas coming forward as well. I think you know Rachel Reeves has set out some really uh, good and solid stuff around uh, our approach to the economy and particularly around me uh, as, as well. So I, I, it feels like we are starting to get the 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 planks in place of a policy platform that I think can speak to uh, people's concerns as we, we head towards whenever that next general election might be. I think we're not really short of policy necessarily. I think we've got something in the region of 200 odd policies. What we're missing is your kind of lines in the sand that communicate to the general public who with the, what our priorities are. Um, I'll give you, so for example, um, tough on crime, tough on the causes of crime. I cannot remember the specific policy commitments around that slogan um but i can remember the slogan and people in 97 probably weren't aware of the specific policy um proposals but they knew labor cared about crime and dealing with crime and the same with education 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 you probably couldn't remember the specifics of the policy but you knew that labor cared about education so if you were worried about your kids schooling you you had that line in the sand that said these people are, you know, care about what I care about. Um, and I think that's what we've been missing. And it's not necessarily about kind of three word slogans, um, but it is about, you know, short, brief lines in the sand, three or four of them. These are what we care about. And then the rest of it uh, is kind of under that umbrella, the, the detailed policies like housing policy would, would need some, you know, something that says, we care about housing. And then underneath that, you have the housing as a human right policy and all these different policies. Uh, one line that I've heard Keir use, I think I heard Keir use, might have been somebody else, jobs you can raise a family on, something like that. But, you know, underneath that, you can have all of your economic specifics and policies, um, which the public are probably not going to read because they've got lives, unlike the rest of us. But they, they need to know that, you know, we care about jobs. And that that kind of line in the sand slogan is what I think we're missing rather than specifically the policy 
aspect of it? Well, when I was struck by a conference, so I spoke at a couple of fringe events, and one of them was on our Stronger Together for Public Services um, policy starter for 10. Loads of ideas in there about public services, not one mention of local authorities and no acknowledgement about the fact that local authorities deliver a huge amount of our public services and a huge amount of the prevention work that stops people needing the national services. And that complete blind spot for local government, um, for me, was really worrying. I've spoken to another one around uh, COP and climate change. Again, complete blind spot in what we were putting forward around the role of local authorities in it all. And we need to remember local authorities are the only place Labour has any power right now. Uh, we've got 70-something councils up and down the country where we are in power. We're doing things. We're not a party of opposition in those. Um, but at the moment, I'm not seeing that feeding through into the national policy agenda at all. Um, and while that remains a blind spot, we're not going to have a comprehensive offer. But I think that there's a really important point that Bridge makes there just about, and we, we, we've, it's something that's not just been a frustration recently. I think this has been a frustration in the Labour Party for a number of years of us not recognising the fact that we are a serious party of government in, in the big cities and in many other local authorities, not really learning the lessons of what we're able to do locally and using that to shape a national policy agenda. So if you just look at some of the stuff that we've done in Birmingham over the last decade, whether it's been um, driving up take up of the, 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 the living wage, um, not just amongst our own workforce, but trying to drive the take up of the living wage across the wider city economy, using procurement in a, in a really creative way to deliver more jobs and better opportunities for people. And um, there's an awful lot in that those agendas that could shape the basis of a really appealing Labour programme at a general election. And there's lots of three word slogan opportunities, LJ, in, in that kind of stuff that's happening at local government. And we do need to get better at understanding the important role that local government plays as the, the test bed for stuff that could, we could then do nationally as a, as a government. So population of Wales is only very slightly bigger than the population of the West Midlands combined authority area. Yeah, these are massive areas where, you know, on the scale of Wales and Scotland, it's taken seriously. On the scale of some of combined authority areas, it's just not. And the you compare the population size, you compare the size of the, those economies, um, and you compare the the, um, the contribution they make to to national GDP, national um, achievement, and everything. We take the ones that our nation state seriously and we take the ones that are of similar size, almost exactly the same size, actually, in this case, um, very much less seriously. And as a party, we need to start taking those other sub-regional structures much, much more seriously, I think. Now, John and I are cabinet members in a city that is bigger than three EU nation states. There are, I think we worked out around about half the countries competing in the Commonwealth Games next year have smaller populations than our city. Um, we need to start taking these geographies, these economies, these populations seriously as a party and stop seeing it as a sideshow. It's interesting how the conversation on this has kind of ended up at a similar point to the conversation with Conservatives and the levelling up stuff, where essentially you end up with the conclusion that the UK is an incredibly centralised state and we need proper devolution and by the localism klaxon is usually what Stephen and I would say back in the in the early funny podcasts and maybe if we just finish with some of the stuff that the Tories are talking about doing in 2022 that some of the things that have been leaked as part of that leveling up paper which I think was also described as self-indulgent blue skies wank the, the draft that they're going to um, try and redo for January someone's gonna have a great Christmas but one of the things they're going to change is so local lent local enterprise partnerships 
which were brought in by Cameron and the coalition government in 2011. They're talking about scrapping them and replacing them with something else. So you've got a weird position, I think, where you've got a tired Tory party that is so sclerotic about what it's doing in government, it's starting to abolish stuff that it set up in its own government and doesn't really seem to have much idea of what's going on beyond what Boris Johnson thinks in a particular week. And then yeah, look at the local enterprise example or local enterprise partnership example. Um, so that has been under review for a, for a succession of ministers now. And I was sitting around the LEP board um, three years ago in person, in real life, listening to people discussing what the minister may or may not do with LEP reviews, with overlap issues and so on. It, um, it, it's just been with a lot of these things, the Tory party has just been an internal review state and an internal non-decision state. But really, I just wanted to say thanks for ruining the yellow song for me with your uh, your blue sky wank. It's not my blue sky wank, to be clear. It's uh, <laughs> very much Michael Gove and Andy Halfstanes, if that helps the, the image. It does not, um, not remotely. Moving on then. The, the last refuge of a, of a government that has kind of like run out of ideas is basically rebranding things the nhs and local government in particular are very good targets for this because there's always lots of random little kind of like you know uh, organizations or or sections of of the hierarchical power structure which where, where decisions are made where you can always go oh yeah we need to flatten this out or we need to insert more accountability here or you know insert whatever buzzword you want to kind of put in place and so like LEPs being yeah, a, a thing that they're talking about kind of, um, you know, um, getting rid of and, and swapping out with something else. 100% it's it's the sort of thing I would expect from this because it's the sort of thing which fundamentally probably isn't going to make a blind bit of difference to actually anything. It's other than maybe making like Bridget and John's life like more complicated and giving them a headache as it all goes on. Like it won't necessarily add power to to those levels it won't add power to councils won't give more devolution or anything like that it's just reshuffling the uh the the the, the, the deck chairs for the sake of reshuffling the deck chairs so you look busy it's also a perfect example of how the public's mind and in the government's own mind the boris johnson conservatives and the david cameron theresa may conservatives are two different political parties. Some of Johnson's problems has been that that's how he's seen it, and it, the, that's not necessarily the reality, and the Conservative Party is coming back to reclaim its own in a way. But, you know, I don't think the sort of austerity stuff is actually working as an attack on Boris, partly because it gives them an easy way out to talk about this levelling up stuff, even if it's an empty slogan. Partly because in the minds of the public and in the minds of Johnson, they're two different political parties. Um, I was going to finish off by asking this though, as an open-ended question, but because LJ has broken the podcast rule of addressing Boris Johnson as Boris and not Prime Minister or Mr Johnson or Boris Johnson, and as this question takes the form of a prediction, I'll come to LJ first on this. So politics in 2020, politics in 2021 especially around COVID and the pandemic, and yes, I'll put 10p into the fund for the drinks for the quiz. The government was very much given the benefit of the doubt. In 2020, it was um, no other government could have done a better job in a situation, regardless of the facts on the ground that would contradict that. In 2021, especially in the first half of the year, it was about the politics, the, va the vaccine bounce. 
Do you think that will change in 2022? Who knows what the government will have announced in the, in the next 24 hours. But do you think that, that the politics and the benefit of the doubt that the government's been getting over COVID, does that start to wear off in 2022? I think it has. That was part of an all-in-it-together feeling, and they have thrown that under a bus um with the with the number 10 parties the public is sickened of them you know as i said at the beginning it's turning the lights on during the blitz the public feels like they've been taken to fools because they were you know this this the reason that a tat line one rule for them and one rule for everyone else resonates is because it's true and i think the public has clocked that and i don't think they're going to forgive this government for that um and i think they have completely lost any benefit of the doubt whatsoever I see lots of nods. I also kudos while people decide what to say for LJ, I think got two Labour attack points in the same sentence there. We're going to have to do better, comrades. It's one rule for LJ. Well, I stay on message, OK? It's, it's a new thing. It's a new thing I'm trying. COVID's obviously changed you. Um, any final thoughts reacting to that or are we just in general agreement with LJ, which is not where I expected this episode to end up? I mean, it is a unique experience, but yes, I think we probably are <laughs> with LJ. Um, I, I just think, you know, just just talking to uh, to, to uh, people, that sense of, you know, we, we, we sought to all come together to unite behind a fairly clear set of rules about what was and wasn't permitted, you know, in order to see off the virus. And then we discover that, you know, national leaders were taking an entirely different approach, but, but you know, the, the rules didn't count for them. And I think this has been unravelling for a bit longer. I mean, I think this actually started with the, the famous Barnard Castle eye test, but people were still prepared to cut the government a bit of slack even after that. Um, but, you know, the, this what we've seen unfold over the last couple of weeks with the, the, the photographs and, you know, the, 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 press brief, the, the mock press briefing where effectively people have been laughed at. Um, I think you, we've just passed a point now. And then when you attack, you add it to some of the other, you know, clear policy failures that are coming through, I think we're back into politics much more as normal in 2022, uh, regardless of where we may end up, given that, you know, it's, it's not clear whether there's going to be a circuit breaker or anything else over the next few weeks. But I think people have, have, have now really seen through uh, the, the, the sham of, of what's been, what, what government's been up to. I think the, the Barnard Castle thing, people were prepared to excuse the government because they blamed Dominic Cummings individually mm. and because he he left. I mean, it took months for him to leave, but he did leave. Um, whereas I think Number 10's had, what, two, three parties? Conservative HQ had a party. The Department of Transport had a party. One of the other departments has a party. I can't remember which one it was. Let's apologise for having a party. So that was... it's. It's a much broader thing. It's the entire Conservative Party and government apparatus, rather than being able to say it was one bad apple who then and got the cabinet punished. secretary can't investigate the party because it turns out he may have been at the party. Yeah. I, I was mean, I, to know I, where our invites were to all these parties. When we have a Labour government, Bridget, we'll have all the non-COVID compliant parties in Downing Street we can get our hands on. I, I think um, LJ's kind of like hit the nail on the head there in, in that people were willing to forgive Barnard Castle. People were willing to forgive Matt Hancock because those were explicitly the actions of individuals mm. um, in, 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 in multiple different, different ways. Once you get into the realm of here are 
here's all of the things that were happening at the exact same time. Here's all of the 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 the, 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 the literal photos of the prime minister sat on a a Zoom call or or, or whatever it was, and get, giving out questions as part of a quiz. Um, sat next to two people who are not COVID compliant in themselves uh, for a non-work related activity, and and you, you see all of these things happening. It, it's one of those things where for for, for a, you know, like if you if you chip away at chip away at a wall like slowly slowly you will be damaging it but eventually it just collapses because like you've just done enough damage to that one spot where it becomes no longer structurally sound and i think what's happened is we've got a combination of those those other things kind of wearing thing wearing people's tolerance for the government's actions and things like that down and then we've just had a tsunami of you know, news and, and reports that just demonstrated that they weren't taking things seriously. And, and I think it be- becomes worse. Like, I, I think if this, if these hadn't been like, you know, Christmas parties, if they'd been like summer barbecues or, 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 or something else like that, if they'd been at a different time of year, mm. people may have very well been a lot more forgiving. But everybody's Christmas last year, for the most part, was utterly ruined in one way or another. And people are just sat there remembering what last year's Christmas was like and seeing how this was not the case for these people. And that's what sticks in people's people's like minds. I'd say if, if this had just turned out to be, you know, they had some barbecues or whatever, people would have probably just been, oh, all right, that's fine. But because it's Christmas and Christmas, for whatever reason, holds a very special place in the heart of a lot of the UK. Christmas, for whatever reason, do we have... Oh. I feel like we have to give Steve a proper Christmas <laughs> or at least send you to some sort of re-education Christmas camp or something. I mean, that's that. That's what my, what some of my other group uh, mate, mates do. They invented an entire, uh, an entire meal for us to do every year called Steve Mus. It, it makes yes. me really sad because Birmingham has been recognised as the most Christmassy city in the UK. So, you know, we really need to, to stage an intervention with Steve well, to get him to understand the true meaning of it all. It, it might be a, a sort of telling of our different personalities that Corey felt sorry for Steve and wanted to organise him a Christmas party. And I was sitting there going, he's going to get three ghosts overnight on Christmas Eve. <laughs> coming to I think with, with the Barnard Castle stuff, it's easy to disassociate for Johnson, Dominic Cummings, because Cummings was obviously a maverick. And obviously a bit of a tool. Similar with the Matt Hancock sort of lockdown breaking um, that led to his resignation earlier this year. Because again, it's not that like Hancock was a great sort of ally of Johnson's. And, and that was more a sort of sex scandal rather than a lockdown breaking scandal. Um, whereas, you know, I, I, think, I think you're right, because it's obviously right at the heart of government. And there was interesting, there's been another lockdown breaking story that in May 2020, there was a party in which I don't think that socialising was, was allowed at that point. And Johnson, um, it's interesting that hasn't had the anger yet. Although the interesting thing in that is that apparently Johnson was at the party um, telling number 10, well, well done, everyone, we, we've beaten back COVID. And just like, the sheer misplaced nonsense optimism. Well, everyone's looking stunned now. I'm guessing that's still over the revelation of Steve-mas. Um <laughs> Do we think that Boris Johnson will survive this and be prime minister at the end of this uh, at the end of 2022? You'll have to wait for the not enough champagne quiz, listeners, in which the predictions round will be unveiled in all of its predictive glory. Until then, 
Dave Depper composed our theme tune, Cookie Good Times. James Cram designed our logo. You can follow him on Twitter at James Cram. Um, I've forgotten the. I've had one martini. I can't even what the rest of the things is. Our Facebook page is facebook.com forward slash not enough champagne. Our Facebook page, no, our website is not enough champagne.com. Our Twitter handle is at no champagne pod. I got there. Marvelous. My Twitter handle is at paperback rioter. Steve. Mine's at acoustic radical. Mine's at councillor John Cotton. At LJD Labour. At Bridget Jones. No, not that one. My Bridget Jones. Happy Christmas, England.